Good morning. My name is Dan Song, and I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's good to be together. As you've heard, we are looking at our vision series, and it's good to do that every now and then, every two years or so, because it reminds us of who we are and what we are about here at Restoration. There's a lot of good churches in St. Louis, uh, but each church has a specific calling to what God wants to do for their congregation for their community and neighborhood and so as we're looking at this we wanted to be able to come back to this one of the questions that I have for us as we go through this vision series is to ask yourself this question and I've begun to do that as I've met some of you individually but in what ways has the last 17 months of this pandemic impacted you individually another question to think about is in what ways has this pandemic over these last 17 months impacted your view and your involvement in the church? So much has happened. And one of the things that we as a session has, have continued to remember and hold on to is though so much uncertainty, so, though so much has happened in the life of our church and in this world, the vision has not changed. When the, first, when the pandemic first hit and we shut down the building and we worship virtually, one of the things that we as a session, our, our leadership said was that our vision remains the same, what God has called us to. Now what that looks like and how we pursue that might change, but the vision still remains the same. And this is the vision of our church. You can find it on the, the uh, companion guide on the back, but let me read this for you. Our vision is this, we exist to pursue the restoration of people, communities, and cultures in the greater St. Louis area and the world through the transforming power of the gospel. That's our vision. And a lot has happened in our city and our world. But this remains the same. And for the next five weeks, we want to be able to flesh out what that looks like for us in the ways that the, that the pandemic has impacted us in the last 17 months. And so next week, we're going to look at what this vision means for us as we, look at, as we look at worship. The following week, we'll look at what it means when it comes to spiritual formation. Discipleship is another word people will use. What it means for our next-gen ministries, as we think about children and students of our church. And then lastly, in the fifth week, we'll look at what this means for our mission and purpose as we go out into our neighborhoods and to our communities and workplaces. But that's what we want to do. Today, we're going to be looking at the transforming power of the gospel, the most important aspect of, aspect of who we are as a church. In membership class, if you've ever attended, I always say, I always illustrate the gospel as being the engine to a vehicle. That it is the gospel that propels us forward. It is the motivation. It is the grace that we need to be able to be who we are. And so that's where we're going to start this morning. The transforming power of the gospel. And so pray with me as we dive into God's word this morning. Lord, we give you thanks for the vision that you have given to our church. And though we don't do it perfectly, though we stumble and fall, and at other times we rejoice in what you have been doing, Lord, I pray that you would give us minds uh, that would be renewed in our hearts to be able to continue to pursue the vision that you have called us to. And so as we look at this beautiful reminder 
Maybe for some of us, a brand new reminder of what the gospel is for us. Pray, Lord, that you would illumine our hearts. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear this wonderful good news of the gospel. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled this sermon series, this vision series, Embodied Church. And the reason I did that was because over these last 17 months, as I've asked the question of how this has impacted me, one of the most important factors that I have learned over, this, over these 17 months is how important our bodies are. That the physical matter of this world actually matters. And it was, I learned that valuable lesson when at the height of this pandemic, Everything about the body, the physical matter, was stripped away from us, right? And here what we see is that our bodies matter. And as you go through the companion guide, you'll actually come across this quote. It's by Tish Warren. She's an Anglican priest and an author, and she wrote this book, Prayer in the Night. And this is what she says about how our bodies matter. We live each moment of our lives from the best to the worst in our bodies. We discover love not as an abstract idea, but by being fed and held close as infants. We know loneliness as a tightening ache just above the sternum. We meet the passing seasons in an icy blast on our cheeks or hot pavement beneath our feet. Pain, pleasure, trauma, and anguish are embodied states. We do not simply have bodies. We are bodies. That's not all we are, but we are irreducibly embodied creatures. I think she's exactly right and nails it on the head that we are truly embodied creatures. Isn't that what we see in our Christian worldview in Genesis 1 and 2? God creates man and woman from the dust of the ground. He breathes air into our nostrils. We are embodied people. And God has placed us not in a world as disconnected souls, but as people who taste and experience and live life in this beautiful dance of body and bones, flesh and bones, muscles, blood, and neurons. This is who we are. We are embodied creatures. And I learned this valuable lesson through all the different experiences from these last 17 months. When my dad was in the ICU in Korea for two months, he was in there alone. Not even his, my mom could be with him. And FaceTime and cacao wasn't sufficient for me to be able to care and be present for my dad. Everything in me wanted to go to Korea, but all of the restrictions inhibited me. And I was reminded of how important our, our bodies and physical nature are. I thought about my wife when her friend passed away during COVID to a tragic accident. We were not allowed to be there physically to be able to care and support that family. But what do we do? We had to watch it on YouTube. And what made it worse was the fact that we saw her friend's family grieving alone in a large, empty sanctuary. It's not just personal things, but it's even our church. 
when we had to shut down and we went virtual, I wasn't preaching to physical bodies. I was preaching to a single lens on a camera or an iPhone without anybody here except for the five or six that were helping us get the virtual services going. The music team was singing and leading us not to people in the sanctuary, but to those five or six that were here worshiping together. And there was a loss in that. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Think about our community groups that were no longer meeting in person, but over Zoom. And how hard and difficult that was for so many of us. I think about all our singles who live alone and had no physical touch or physical presence but themselves in their own apartments or in their homes. And we think about the suffering of our children and students in their virtual classes when schools were shut down and the lack of social and physical interaction that caused everything from minor depression to suicidal thoughts. It's through these human experiences we realize just how important the embodied presence is for us. As great as the digital world has been, it serves its purpose. It gives us flexibility and efficiency and productivity. It is still lacking because we are embodied people. Why wasn't FaceTime, YouTube, text, and DMs sufficient for all of these difficult experiences that we had? Well, the reason is because embodied people need embodied presence. Physicality. Our bodies actually matter, not only for ourselves, but for one another. We are made of dust and dirt. Life has been breathed into us. And it's through our embodied humanness that we engage God's embodied world. Isn't that right? There is no substitute for this. We all feel it in our beings. To be human is to actually be an embodied person. And the church is the same way. Church is not only a place where we just gather, but it's actually who we are. We are the embodied church. And these last 17 months have reminded me of how important that aspect of church is to this church restoration. That the church actually, as Paul says, we are the body of Christ. We are actually the body of Christ. We are made up of many parts, arms and legs, eyes, nose, and ears. We all play a part as one. But I think one of the problems that we as a church have faced is that we've relegated ourselves to just content. It's just about what we know. It's just theology, it's just doctrine, it's just these ab abstract ideas that we are supposed to have contained in our mind. And we have, we have uncoupled the flesh from the spirit. And it's just all about the spiritual. It's what you know, what I convey to you, whether it's through digital media or through pamphlets or booklets. But what we have to realize here is that the church is all about being an embodied presence for one another, living out the gospel together. One person said it this way, knowledge used to be embedded in the bodies of people. 
right? We think of knowledge as just things that we think of in our mind. But what he argues is that it is embedded in the bodies of people. For example, that great recipe for homemade bread, it wasn't in a recipe book. People didn't look it up on an app worrying about whether or not they added exactly half a teaspoon of baking powder or an ounce of vanilla. The knowledge was in its fingertips. And it was on the tongue. It was enfleshed, incarnated, and shared with others in the same way. You talk to a grandmother of yours, and how do you get a recipe? It's not from a book. It's from the person who has lived it out, experienced it, tasted it. And that's where we truly understand knowledge, not to just be something in the mind, but it's truly contained in the person. And that's what we want to be able to do in the next five weeks, the embodied church. What does that actually mean for us as we live out the vision and mission that God has called restoration to? Well, we're looking at the book of Philippians because here's what we're setting ourselves up for in Philippians. The church understood that the embodiment of the gospel was in Jesus Christ. It was through his incarnation, and we use that word incarnation. What it literally means is in flesh meant. God takes on body. He takes on flesh and becomes a human being. He becomes man, and he lives out the gospel and declares the gospel, not just as an announcement, but in who he is. And because of this beautiful passage that we read of this embodiment of Jesus Christ, the church lives that out. And so that's why Paul says things like, as we'll see in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That God is going to transform our lowly bodies, not souls, but our lowly bodies into a glorious body. That's why Paul aches when he says, I long to see you, church. And what does the church do in Philippi? In Philippi? They actually send one of their members, Epaphroditus, to Paul, and he almost dies. But they understand that to live out the gospel is an embodiment, embodied presence of the church together, living it out. Paul talks about anxiety, feeling it in his physical body. And he does something about it. You see, it, it begins here with the transforming power of the gospel. God becoming flesh. And that's what we want to see here in three different ways. I know I spent a lot of time in this introduction. My wife was like in the first verse, she's like, you need to cut that intro a little shorter. But it's hard. We're introducing this new theme. But here we want to be able to say, what does that actually mean for us as we look at this passage in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11? Three movements that help us to understand what is the gospel of Jesus. Well, first, here's the first thing that we see. The gospel is a story of the person and work of Jesus incarnate. The gospel is a story of the person of Jesus Christ. The reason that that's so important here is because the gospel is not just a set of doctrines or beliefs that we just have in our head. I think that's where we, the church has been for way too long now. It's just a bunch of presuppositions, some ideas, and as long as we know it, we're okay. But what we see the gospel is, it is the story, the true story of the person and work of Jesus. Read here in verse 6, verse six and 7. Who though he, being Christ Jesus, 
was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What we see here is God becomes flesh. God becomes a human being. This word form that you see in verse 6, there's been a lot of ink that has been spilled trying to argue what does that word actually mean. It's the Greek word morphe. But in actuality, what this really means is it refers to the essence or the essential characteristic of something. In other words, it means those qualities which make something what it is. And what Paul is saying is Jesus, God, was truly God himself. And he goes on in the end of verse 6 and he says, he did, not e- he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. You see, what he's saying is that Jesus was God in his being. And he did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, something to hold on to. And so what we see here in this movement in verse 7 is then this, this idea of his, him incarnating. He became flesh. He took on becoming a human being. He did not let go of his deity and being God, but he added on fully his personhood, his humanity. And so what we see in Jesus Christ is his divine, his divinity, and his humanity inseparably joined together. God becomes man. And why that's so important for us is that Because Jesus becomes man, he enters into human history. God enters into our space. The God of the universe enters into this specific moment in time, in space, in history. He enters into a specific race and ethnicity, into a specific kind of culture, gender, family, upbringing, even the suffering and hardships of his life and even to a specific kind of climate. There is a physicality into which God comes into this world. And that's that first movement that God makes. He becomes man. He embodies what it means to be the image bearers that we are. And there is something absolutely beautiful and wonderful about this aspect of God becoming a human being. Because In his humanity, he understands us. Have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever been rejected? Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever experienced loneliness in your life? Have you ever experienced hunger? Have you ever experienced thirst? Have you ever experienced exhaustion? Have you ever experienced illness where you are actually facing death? Well, Jesus in his humanity also experienced everything that we have experienced, but even more so. You see, he understands us. He has lived the life that we have lived. All the suffering, all the hardship, everything that it means to be human. In our bodily form, he has experienced This is this first aspect and movement that the gospel is the story of the person of Jesus, not just an idea. He could have easily, from the clouds up in heaven, could have declared all the tenets of the faith that we're supposed to believe, that God is good, that we are sinners, 
And this is what it means to believe and have salvation. But he didn't. He came and dwelt among us. The word became flesh, as John said. And he lived among us. And one of the beautiful things is that he understands all the pain, suffering, hardships that we endured over these last 17 months. And he comes to us with comfort and counsel and wisdom and his presence, his presence for us. But the second thing we need to see here is that the gospel is the redemption of his creation from sin. The second thing we see here is that the gospel is the redemption of his creation from sin. Look at verse 8. We see another movement, right? God becomes human. But look, it goes even further down. He goes lower in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, one of the things that we hold dear to us is that Jesus came not only to live and to, and to bring comfort and his presence to us in our humanity, but he also came for our salvation. You see, sin marred and polluted everything in creation. All that was good became marred by sin. So one aspect of why Jesus came to die for us on the cross was to bear all the sin that impacted us and our relationship with God. Right? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, humanity chose to rebel against God and do what was right in their own eyes. They wanted to live their own lives. They wanted to find their identity and significance in other things rather than in God. And so we have been alienated and our relationship with God has been completely ripped apart. And what does God do? God becomes man and he comes to die on our behalf. He lived the perfect life that we cannot live. We all deal with our own brokenness, our shame, our guilt. And what Jesus does, he says, you can't do it. So I have come and I've lived the perfect life that you cannot live. And I've died the death that you deserve because you have chosen to rebel against me. And he says, I have come for you and rose from the dead so that you might not live according to your own righteousness, according to your own resume, but by mine, my perfect, my perfection, my holiness. And that is our grace. Though we don't deserve it, he has given us life for those who have placed their faith in Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. I know for some of us, it sounds sounds weird for me to have to explain what it means but some of us might not actually know what it means to follow Jesus it doesn't mean to just be a good person it doesn't mean to just say oh I believe in a higher power but at its core it is to place your faith in Jesus who lived the perfect life who it's because of his righteousness that he places on me not because of anything I have done or don't do or can do or can't do but only because of Jesus when I place my faith in him and desire to follow him that is what makes me a follower of Christ. And here, that's what Jesus does. He redeems us in our relationship with him and reconciles us to himself. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But there's another aspect to this that sometimes the church forgets about. We reduce it to just me and God, my personal salvation. But that's not what Christianity is. When we look at the gospel, Jesus comes to redeem and restore all that has been broken. All that has been polluted by sin. And that means our physical bodies, our anxiety, our depression, 
our nerves, our illnesses, disease, but also the disease of this world. All that was good, pollution, our climate, wars that are going on in our world, racism, injustice. God has come in the flesh to redeem all that is broken. And sometimes we miss out on that. But as one commentator said, this is what he said, he said, God created both soul and body. And the resurrection of Jesus shows us that he is going to redeem both the spiritual and the physical. Therefore, God is concerned not only for the salvation of souls, but also for the relief of poverty, hunger, and injustice. God came to redeem all that has been broken. And that's a beautiful thing. One of my good friends who's not a believer, or who, who's not a believer, he went to church growing up, but he has completely rejected the faith. And when we got together one time and I shared about this aspect, this how God is renewing all things, his eyes lit up. Why? Because he had never heard, he thought the gospel was so reduced to just me and my salvation, I'm going to hell or I'm just going to be damned. But when he, first, when he heard for the first time this beautiful, larger, bigger story of how Jesus came to redeem all things, he said, I need more of that in my life. And to this day, he's still wrestling with what that actually means for him. But we need to see the fuller, bigger picture of what this looks like, that Jesus came and that the gospel is here to redeem all that has been marred and broken because of sin. But here's the third movement that we need to move on to. The gospel is a reversal of all the world's values. The gospel is a reversal of all the world's values. Restart. This is the third movement that we see. But look what happens in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, what we see in this third movement is that all that Jesus did in his self-emptying, taking on flesh, obedience to death, even on the cross, what it does is it leads to glory. Because of the self-giving of Jesus expressed in the very nature of who God is. In other words, what we see here in the gospel of Jesus is that there is this reversal of the world's values. The way up is actually the way down. Salvation, glory, redemption is only by the way of the cross. That is the economy of God is one of humility. It's one of suffering, weakness, self-sacrifice. These are the things of how God, the gospel, flips everything around versus what the world would say, right? How do we experience success in this world, in our culture? Power, money, influence, your job, your stock portfolio, your family, these are the things that we would say gives us success, but what we see here is that it's actually the exact opposite. Look at what we see in how Paul actually describes this for the church in, in, in Philippi, starting in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see, the gospel is an exact reversal of what the world says is important. Tim Keller says it this way, Christ wins our salvation through losing. He achieves power through weakness and service. He comes to wealth by giving everything away. Those who receive his salvation also are not the strong and the accomplished, but those who admit that they are weak and lost. Salvation, because it is achieved through weakness and it is received through weakness, pulls off a complete reversal of the values of this world with regard to power, recognition, status, and wealth. When we understand that we are saved by sheer grace through Christ, we stop seeking salvation in these sort of things like recognition, status, wealth, and power. The reversal of the cross, the grace of God, therefore liberates us from the bondage to the power of material things and worldly status in our lives. You see, what we see here in Jesus becoming flesh, in going down, it shows us what the gospel is truly about. It is the reversal of all things that the world says is success. That's why I think when we come to this idea of the transforming power of the gospel, you know where that begins? Begins in the church. The transforming power of the gospel. God becoming flesh. God redeeming all things that sin has polluted. God reversing what is valuable and important in our culture. You know how that is expressed and where it begins? It begins with the church. The embodied church that believes in the embodied God. The church is so essential and important to the gospel. You know why? Because God just didn't give us a bunch of things to believe in a book. Yes, don't get me wrong. Don't hear what I'm not saying. The Bible is absolutely important. But do you know how the gospel is expressed in our world? and our community. He forms the church, a community, to be the bearer of the good news of the gospel. Our identity is bound up in being sent by Jesus so that the world may know the good news of the kingdom of God that he has declared. He doesn't just declare it. He comes in flesh and goes out into the world to be able to show what the kingdom of God looks like. And that is our purpose. That's what the church is called to do, to be embodied, to be an embodied presence for our community and for our world. And that's where our vision begins. It's the transforming power of that gospel that is embodied here at Restoration to be able to go out into the world and to actually live it out visibly as we are embodied presence for others. That's where the vision of restoration begins. And just as an encouragement for each and every single one of us, I've actually seen that over the last 17 months. Talk about laying down one's life. Think about all of our medical community that call, calls themselves members of our church. Many in our medical community that literally laid down their life to be able to care for the sick and those that were dying under deathbeds. We think about looking to the interest of others, 
When it came to people losing their jobs, I saw people come together to support and build networks and pray together for those that lost their jobs. People who got sick during COVID. We saw people develop care calendars and send food and meals to one another because this is what it means to express the bodied gospel to one another. One person shared about how someone at this church dropped off a bottle of wine for them. And they said that it was a tangible reminder of the gospel. That's what it means to be embodied. Think about the ways that we continued, even in the height of this pandemic, to participate with loaves and fishes and to care for that ministry, to see people housed and have homes and to receive the food and employment that they needed. And when we talk about humbling ourselves, I mean, do you remember at the height of this pandemic, we also had so much racial, racial tension in our nation? And I saw people in our church humble themselves to listen, lament, and repent of the racial injustice in the ways that we both contributed and in the ways that we were bystanders. This is what it means to be in an embodied presence that believes in the gospel to go forth in our communities and our neighborhoods. This is where it begins, brothers and sisters. What does it look like for you individually, but for us as a church, to do this together? We're going to be looking at that in the next four, four more weeks. Thinking about worship, spiritual formation in the community. As we think about our children and our students. As we think about the mission that God has called us to. What does this look like to begin with the transforming power of the gospel? Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you did not just give us a set of beliefs or a doctrine, but you gave us yourself. You gave us yourself who lived, lived the life that we could not live, who experienced so much suffering and hardship, but lived it perfectly for us so that, Lord, in you, through your death and resurrection, we might have life. So, Lord, I pray that this week you would continue to work in our hearts, allow the word of God to continue to marinate, so that, Lord, we might be able to live out the life that you have called us to as believers. Lord, we know it's hard, but by your grace and your strength and your spirit, Lord, help us to be agents of the transforming power of the gospel that you have called each and every single one of us to. Do that good work, 